Hey everyone, welcome to Reformed Podmatics, hosted by the pastors of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. It's Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey, and this podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Reformed Podmatics. My name is Pastor Mark. And I'm Pastor Zach. And we thank you for joining us for this uh, kind of a second part episode. We've talked a little bit already about another podcast that is sweeping the nation, um, sort of is concluded now, called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, produced Mm. by Christianity Today. And that podcast just concluded a couple, maybe about two weeks ago, week and a half ago, um, and we have been listening and um, thinking about this podcast. It's sort of strikes very near to us um, in some ways theologically, and and part of Zach's story does include um, Mark mm-hmm. Driscoll, and, yeah. and so um, we were we we're listening um, with great interest, and we know that many people have been doing so uh, who listen to this podcast as well, and so we thought we'd give a few conclusion. Uh, comments about uh, Mark Driscoll's goings-on, both uh, maybe more so in Mars Hill, but I I think we'll spill a little bit into his current situation as well throughout this podcast. And so um, the the intention of the podcast, ours at least, is not to heap on this man, is certainly not to Hmm. delight in some grave errors that he's made, which they are certainly very serious errors and... uh, I would even go so far as to say uh, ministry malpractice being uh, committed in at Mars Hill, but but we're not we're not doing this to to really make ourselves feel better, like we're perfect pastors, and isn't it so terrible that that he's such a a, a dirty guy? Um, but to really try to learn and um, thinking particularly of. Uh, the the lay person who's listening to that podcast or this one, uh, we want to learn um, both about ourselves and our own sinful nature, and we want to learn also about how we might be on guard against similar situations happening in our own lives. Yeah, there's a lot of lessons that can be learned. I think that's what we can start out by saying. Yeah, and that's the that's the good part of this podcast, uh, as we we've been listening to it uh, basically every week. Uh, there's there's lots of good conversation things that have come up that have and, and so if we're thinking about this podcast and our overall thoughts one of the first things that I I will tell people is that I think this podcast is good because it speaks to sensibilities and it sort of to use the popular word resonates with mm-hmm. uh, younger Christians particularly Millennials but I think also with zoomers as well or Gen Z um, but it has stirred up good conversations, conversations that have been bubbling up already. And so it makes sense that when this podcast started this summer, what was it, uh, that it bolted right to the top of yeah. the podcasting charts. Uh, it was one of the top five podcasts over the, like the whole globe. And it wasn't mm-hmm. just the top five Christian podcasts. Mm-hmm. It was just a really, really 
famous podcast. Part of that speaks to the, the fact that this podcast was really well done. Done Christianity Today mm-hmm. uh, did did a good job, and particularly uh, Mike Cosper did a good job in terms of its production and its it's being interesting to listen to and the quality of it. Yeah, well it. researched. Uh, it was yeah. very well researched, and there's good music, and there's it's good clips, good audio, and so on. So that part is <laughs> is helpful, but it has stirred up good conversations. Whether or not I've agreed with everything that every person has said, well, I can't. I can assure you that I, I do not, mm-hmm. because there's been spectrum a spectrum of of people speaking. It's been all over the place in terms of different people's takes on the situation, which is, I think, by and large, a good thing. Um, but I have appreciated. It's honest look at things. Hmm. Um, sometimes, sometimes I wish things would have taken a different direction, but it wasn't my podcast. I wasn't the one doing it, so <laughs> I was just on board for the ride. Uh, but I think overall I, I, we can say that there are good lessons to be learned and that we should heed the lessons insofar as we are able. And it seemed like it was produced mostly with that goal. Um, so, yeah, mostly, I think. So maybe... Um, we can just review really quickly what actually happened um, over the course of the podcast. Uh, I know that this, the the podcast, uh, just the last two episodes alone are probably five hours. Um, yeah, and so a on. lot happened. But um, maybe we can summarize that just by saying, uh, Mars Hill Church is a Seattle area church or was, um, hmm. and um, really in the early two thousands started to take off. They were utilizing various technological tools like the internet in particular to um to spread mark driscoll sermons and um, that was just drawing people in like crazy the music was very well done very they were culturally um, cutting edge but yeah. conservative theologically yeah and so um they had yeah. kind of a punk rock um ethos you might say in their early phase of while other churches are trying to be seeker sensitive and careful about and family we friendly, yeah, we don't talk about sin here. We don't talk about money or sex. Um, mm. Driscoll talked about those things all the time, and um, and so that was sort of his shtick, you might mm. say. And I, I use the word intentionally. I think it definitely was a shtick, um, kind yeah. of a uh, a tool or, or a gimmick, um, mm. maybe even um, and. I think it, it really was who he is. He's a rough guy, um, often wore a leather jacket, unshaven, sort of five o'clock shadow. Um, we talk about MMA, martial yeah. arts, yeah. fighting. And and he would talk about not just fighting in the, the sport, sporting sense, but probably even wanting to fight people on a street. Um, yeah, and so a tough an, guy. An yeah. edgy guy that, that appealed to a lot of people. And... Um, Things seem to be going great um, from the podcast. It seems like things really took a turn in Easter 2012 when yeah. Mars Hill Church held their Easter services at Quest Field, which is where the Seattle Seahawks football team plays their home games. And um, it sounded like that actually did not go that well. Uh, there weren't yeah. as many people who showed up kind as of a disappointing Driscoll time, wanted I them think. to be. It was raining. Um, <laughs> and so from there, he just went maniacal basically and saying we've got to be bigger better um it church became a competitive sport for driscoll even more so at that point than it already had and so then by 2014 after um i think they said 80 percent of the the staff of mars hill had turned over in those two years between easter 2012 and the end of the church in 2014 driscoll was 
because of various reasons, um, mostly anger issues, mistreating people, manipulating people, mm-hmm. told that he needed a leave of absence. And when he was told that, then he resigned from being the pastor of that church, and the church folded within weeks. Yeah. What's, what was interesting to me, just in recounting that history, was how at the beginning he started out with a very antagonistic view of mm. church growth mm-hmm. evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. Because church growth evangelicalism at the time in the 80s and 90s had been sort of built on being nice, being the sort of, you know, Mr. Rogers of the neighborhood, that (laughs) kind of church, Uh, be friendly, don't speak about the hard aspects, the sharp edges of the Christian faith, uh, but keep keep things sort of PG uh, religiously from the pulpit and let's just have a nice Sunday experience. Mm -hmm. Um, Driscoll really reacted pretty militantly against that and decided to go in the direction of being really over the top masculine uh, conservative uh, rough aggressive tough. yeah and so it, but it's, what was interesting is that as the church developed you could tell he's trying to be a mega church and very clearly the last five or so years of it he was and it was very mm-hmm. outright and clear about that but his whole way of doing it was was a totally different model but it goes back to that saying what you win them with is what you win them to in the 80s and 90s megachurch christianity was winning people to christianity through you could say niceness mm-hmm. uh, driscoll was winning people through christianity with uh i don't know how you want to put toughness, it toughness toughness yeah, right. and being quote authentic and real and yeah. raw um and really controversial purposefully controversial as mm-hmm. well and so there are lots and lots of lessons to to be gleaned here. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I mean, we've just give it, scratched the surface, too. There's a lot of, um, just quite frankly, chauvinism at play in Driscoll's ministry, really um, <laughs> kind of putting down women and the value of women, um, making them sound like really just servants for men, um, and how he talked about women. And... Um, that's that's one factor. Uh, another is doing ministry in Seattle, which is a very uh, politically liberal city. Uh, it really lionized them against um, not just Seattle culture, but hmm. sort of yeah. all all Christian culture in some ways as well. Um, I I heard an, an interesting interview with another podcaster who I, I like the unbelievable podcast with Justin Brierley. And hmm. when Mars rise and fall of Mars Hill was getting popular, he put out his interview with Driscoll and uh, yeah, yeah. about two thirds of the way through the interview, it just becomes extremely contentious because Driscoll discovers that Justin Brierley's wife is a pastor and that's all he <laughs> needs to know to really insult this guy. And, um, kind of play all these little power games um, with, with Justin Brierley in that interview. And um, and the the story coming out of the podcast is that was par for the course for Driscoll. That's just um, how he operated in the church towards other pastors, towards members who he didn't think were being man enough, hmm. um, who, were being, who weren't being tough enough. Um, in fact, there's even a story where a guy does something very, very shameful and throws... Um, a can of something, a bear mace or something, at uh, at a car that's making noise driving down the street, and Driscoll's like, just basically, yeah, the guy had it coming, mm-hmm. and um, and so that that attitude, not being not being Christ-like at all, not being servant-hearted, humble, gentle in spirit, uh, peacekeeping, 
that was basically absent in in the Mars Hill Church culture. Yeah, yeah. One of the lessons that I learned from from this episode or from this podcast was not so much just about Mars Hill, but mm. what this whole podcast, the phenomenon of this podcast, says about broader evangelicalism mm-hmm. and the state of Christianity in the United States today. Uh, and that a lot of this is gleaned then f- not just from the story of Mars Hill, but from people's reactions and takes on it. Um, and it says a lot about um, the, 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 the state of Christianity, where Christianity is uh, and how things are going. Um, and it seems to me that there were two major camps of reaction to this podcast. The first camp were those who you could say believe that there was a fundamental issue with uh, with what was going on at Mars Hill. The second camp would be those who really don't think that there was a fundamental problem at Mars Hill, but that some things just need to have, should have been tweaked or adjusted or changed, uh, but that overall what was happening at Mars Hill was generally quite fine. Um, and so in the first camp, those who believe that there was a major fundamental issue, uh, you could see in the podcast that there were those who would talk often of being uh, into deconstruction mm-hmm. or the idea of questioning Christianity, uh, really starting to deconstruct their faith, pull it apart, see what parts of it were actually true and what weren't. And a lot of the people, um, I wouldn't say most, but a lot of people who were more in this camp on the podcast have kind of given up on Christianity altogether. There yeah. were there were a few, it seemed, were very jaded by it all. Uh, and you can't entirely blame them, of course, for what they have gone through. And then there would be the traditionalists, uh, those who believe that, yes, there was a major fundamental issue, but the, the way of avoiding this in the future is not so much by leaving or tweaking Christianity, but by diving deeper into historic Christianity, um, whether that would be deeper into um institutions or a big conversation we had a few weeks back in our first episode on this was denominations needing that sort of denominational structure over the top of everything that's one of the major problems i think with mars hill Hmm. is that there wasn't and particularly mark was sort of left as a moses an unquestionable leader uh for for mars hill and that was not not a good thing, as we can <laughs> see. And then the other group that I said, those who really don't think there was a major major or fundamental flaw, and this would be sort of broad evangelicalism. Now, I don't think a lot of evangelicals uh, in this camp were really listening to this podcast. There are thousands, m- maybe millions of Christians in the United States alone that still are happily attending a megachurch. Mm-hmm. Um, they still think that the megachurch, non-denominational sort of thing is the way to go um and so i think that this has sort of brought that split there are people Mm -hmm. who are still happy to go to the big uh really highly produced sort of mega church uh you know with the great great music the lively preaching the big personality preacher uh probably the coffee shop as they walk in they can grab their coffee um and I think in that context, the distance from the preacher, too. Yeah. Like, you don't they don't really, really know, know them. They yeah. don't really know you. Yeah. Um, and that's just normal. And this podcast, that they were to hear this podcast, they would likely just say, well, that was a lot of the problems there were just with 
the the one leader mm-hmm. with Mark and his sort of personality. Um, but overall, what Mark was doing wasn't inherently wrong. So that's an interesting mm. divide, I think, is that this podcast has brought about. But it seems to me that the people who are really listening to and thinking about this podcast, the people who have been interviewed in this podcast, fall into one of the the first groups, the people who actually really care about about what what happened at Mars Hill and think that there was a major problem. So you have the deconstructionists, those who are moving towards a more progressive faith because of this, and then those who are standing and saying, uh, don't let Mars Hill represent traditional mm-hmm. historic Christianity because it should not. And I, and I think that that's largely how I felt, maybe you too, Mark, mm-hmm. that uh, Mars Hill should not represent Calvinism. It should not represent the Reformed faith. It should not represent um, a sort of orthodox historic Christianity. Mm. In some ways, doctrinally, on paper, it did sort of align with traditional Christianity. And that's sort of the interesting part of this podcast, Mm. right? They had, Mars Hill had a pretty, quote, traditional view of sexuality and gender, Mm-hmm. Uh, but the way that this was presented and talked about would have lacked, even though it had similar theology, it would have lacked a whole lot of that classical Christian ethos mm-hmm. um, and how these things were approached. Uh, you wouldn't hear church fathers talking about mm-hmm. about sex in quite the same way, or you wouldn't hear even reformers talking about sex in the same way that, that Mark Driscoll was not only doing but happy to do mm-hmm. and thought it was fun to do and kind of joke around about and and uh, talk about sex in such trivial or demeaning ways. Yeah. Uh, you you wouldn't see that sort of thing in historic Christianity, and so that's just been an observation that I've made, sort of a sociological observation. But I think it's it's uh, interesting to consider. Yeah. Um, well, one of the uh, the responses that I I've been interested by is in the Christian Reformed Church. Um, there's been some discussion about this uh, on the pastor's page of the yeah. of Facebook, and that's that's kind of a um, confidential uh, forum, and so I I don't want to go into too much detail, but it, I could say generally speaking that um, some people were always very skeptical of Driscoll because of the the complementarian male headship uh, macho guy mm-hmm. persona that he had. And now that Mars, this Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast is revealing all of the seedy underbelly of that, it seemed as though some are pretty glad to say, I told you so. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And um, with books like The Making of Biblical Womanhood um, by Beth Allison Barr, I think it basically says that, well, any complementarian church today is complicit in that culture that created a Mark Driscoll or mm-hmm. that nodded towards him or winked towards him. Um, and so that that will be an interesting result, a yeah. long-term result, I think, in our own context that... Um, yeah, the guilt by association. Exactly, that we idea. as a complementarian church um, sort of get lumped in with abusive, manipulative, uh, tyrannical pastors um, and I, I find that to be extremely unfortunate and overly simplistic. So, um, yeah, to say the least. Yeah, it, it, it has to be. It, it is overly simplistic, and it's not just 
simplistic in uh, in a way that people can't quite understand, but I think it's simplistic in a way that is manipulative. So, so a man is called to lead in a church, but to do so as a servant, and that is very clearly the teaching of Ephesians five. Hmm. And it, it did not seem as though Mark Driscoll, in his view of complementarianism, was giving himself up for the church as Christ, uh, or for his church as Christ did for us. So there's a, a warping of complement, real complementarian theology that all of a sudden becomes the rule or the standard by which we are judged instead of doing it the other way around, which is to oh. say, no, Driscoll was not understanding um, biblical manhood uh, accurately, and, and what we need to do is recover what that is instead of foisting the Driscoll definition onto all complementarians today. Yeah, this is why more qualification is often needed in these conversations, and it's not a bad thing for people who question complementarians to ask for complementarians to really explain themselves, Hmm. because if a complementarian, complementarian number one says, men should lead churches, and (laughs) complementarian number two says, yes, I agree with you, um, what does that mean? Okay, but let's yeah. dig deeper. Yeah. What does that leadership look like? What should the the uh, the shape of that leadership take? What should be the sort of warp and woof of that leadership? What should it look like uh, on the ground every day on a, on a daily basis? Um, sort of the ethics that go along with leadership. Uh, because some people, maybe Driscoll, I think could fall into this category, see leadership as a primarily domineering role Mm -hmm. where you get to make decisions and you get to tell people what they need to do and need to not do. Uh, Whereas, and sometimes that sort of thing I think is, is true. I think a council, a church council may need to be able to say that. Yeah. Uh, To lead. To lead. Yeah. But complementarian, the other complementarian may say, well, leadership to me looks like dying to myself, considering somebody else's needs is higher than my own, and and seeing to it that their needs are met for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now, this is a very oversimplified way of looking at it, but I think my my point is that some people can agree on basic overall statements, Mm -hmm. but what what they actually mean by those statements uh, often isn't brought to the fore. And I think that this is a pretty serious problem in complementarianism, and this is what is taking place in the world of complementarianism today. There's a a pretty large "what do we mean by this" question that looms over complementarian Christians uh, today, in particularly in the Western part of the world. And there's a big discussion on this, and it's a good discussion. Uh, and we should be very careful in how we articulate what it means. This doesn't mean we need to be, quote, soft complementarians. Mm. Uh, I'm not very soft in the sense that I, I, I really believe this. I actually think it's very true, and I mm. think it's really in line with the scope of God's word. And I'm, there's, I, don't, I don't feel a need to qualify my belief in it, but I do feel the need to really explain what I mean mm-hmm. by it. Mm. Uh, and that, I think that's an important distinction that this whole podcast of Rise and Fall of Mars Hill has has brought up. Yeah, and in, in thinking about that conversation, I think it's it's really helpful to to not have that knee-jerk reaction like I've seen against this podcast. So some people would say, oh, well, of course he was a despotic pastor. 
um, he was he's complementarian. That's that's the way that they all think. So that's offensive to us as yeah. complementarianism. And so we have to be also careful of saying, of course, that woman is a false teacher. It's it's a woman pastor in, in the yeah, in this yeah. liberal denomination or something like surprise, that. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I think it can cut both ways, mm-hmm. and we should be always careful to examine uh, people according to the scriptures instead of t- according to. Um, almost like, uh, do they fit my preconceived notion of what a, a exactly what a pastor should look like and be? Um, and then I'll give them a charitable <laughs> listen, you know, um, mm-hmm. instead of almost approaching with uh, suspicion or cynicism. Um, I think that that, yeah. that definitely happens towards complementarian churches like ours, but it, it just goes the other way as well. Um, and I personally have to be careful of that, uh, to, just to say, I'm going to listen for the gospel here and I'm going to, uh, receive what the Lord is giving me. And mm-hmm. if it is just bunk and it's terrible, well then maybe I do have to, to, I've got something to do there, but to judge an argument on its merit, on its biblical merit, instead of just by the uh, tertiary factors. Yeah. It's kind of when it comes right down to it, intellectual laziness to yeah. do it the other way. Yeah. And that's one of the issues I think with, with maybe a book like Beth Allison Barr's uh, discovering, what is that called? The creation Re- of biblical creation. Womanhood. Yeah. The yeah. creation of biblical manhood, womanhood, womanhood. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just fumbling over myself <laughs> and I, I, I can't say that outright. I've not read that book yet. Um, I've, I've heard a lot about it, heard her do interviews uh, uh, on it. Um, but, it sounds like she would lump everyone together and sort of say, oh, a fundamental problem of any church that is complementarian is that it could lead very easily to being the next Mars Hill. And I don't think that's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, I guess it could, um, but I don't if think it's it divorced would. from Christ himself and from the, the scriptures themselves and really what the nature of biblical Mm-hmm. leadership and I, I preached on this recently I mean, we don't want to get too far into this because we want to talk about some other, other Mars Hill things too <laughs> yeah. but I preached about it saying the Bible one of the biblical images for the church is a household it's the household of God and so um, one of the points in my sermon was um, mm. the pastor has a father's heart uh, that is yeah. very clear to me in um, in first Timothy um, where it says Clearly, if a man cannot lead his own household, how can he lead the church? Hmm. And so, um, the the pastor. What does it mean that the pastor would have a father's heart? Well, Driscoll thinks the father is William Wallace reincarnate with his giant sword who goes lopping off heads. Mm-hmm. That's not so. He has a warped view of fatherhood, yeah. Um, and then, therefore, we'll have a warped view of what that looks like in the church. Um, but if we get to biblical fatherhood. Um, biblical Christ-like leadership, I think that um, that's a very defensible de- defensible position to take. So um, we, we don't want to spend all our time, though, in this episode essentially <laughs> defending something that uh, aligns us a, a little bit, um, maybe even on paper, with, with this mm-hmm. movement of Marcel, because it is a very grievous situation. And so I'm wondering what other lessons we can learn, maybe a little bit on the negative side, um, what do you think are some red flags that we should be aware of or, or gleanings you've taken from the podcast? 
Well, I don't know. I don't know if this is a great answer to that question, but I I do think um, Paul Tripp's mm. statement on the second to last episode, I think it was, uh, where he says we should all and he's speaking sort of tongue in cheek a little bit, but he's being honest, he's saying we should all deconstruct. We should really mm. get to the bottom of why this sort of these sort of phenomenons are so prevalent in the evangelical church today. We should really think deeply. We should grieve these sorts of things. Um, and that's, that's another thing mm-hmm. that we should really grieve Mars, this whole story and we, not just the story, but what it represents at large about Christians and other places, because people have listened to this all across the world and have resonated with it in many ways. And that just goes to show that there is a deeper issue going on here um, that Mars Hill was sort of just representative of. We should really grieve these things. We should be uh, grieved by where the name of Christ and the witness of the gospel has been deeply marred and that will affect generations to come uh, that will have have issues on that will have stains on families Mm -hmm. on on relationships friendships people's particularly their relationship with the Lord, Mm -hmm. uh, that sort of thing should be grieved. Uh, We should really not want to jump to the defense of of things like this, but we should recognize it as the sad and painful thing that it it really was. Yeah, to be honest about it, I think that a a knee-jerk reaction could be to defend it because he was... A Calvinist, a supposed Calvinist, and yep. and had some of those things that are similar to us, but uh, I I think the in, immediate reaction should be a lot of oh no, um, how yeah you know how did this happen? I'm sad that it happened, um, and right alongside with that to say, but by the grace of God go I, you know, yep. um, uh, there was really one one striking little quote where a guy who I think had deconstructed because uh, he was he was he was pretty edgy um I forget who it was but he was pretty angry about things and he said if you listen to this podcast and you think that that could never happen to you then you've learned nothing you've wasted all your time hmm. because that's what I thought and then I was on the staff you know I'm like one of the people <laughs> who are perpetuating all this mess and I I always you know, thought that I, I would see through all the lies and all the manipulation, but um, but he, his point is I didn't see through it, and I was a part of the machine. <laughs> and so I think that if we listen to the podcast and just scoff or say, aha, you know, uh, got these bad guys, it's so, so great that these churches are closed, um, or it's so terrible that Mark Driscoll has just got this next church, um, if that's all... Yeah. If that's the level of our analysis, and it never is internalized to say, well, why might I be attracted to such a, a minister? Why might I want to be such a pastor? Um, I think that's where some really good learning can come. Hmm. Um, I do recall in 2014, right before everything kind of blew up, we were talking about this with other pastors, and I was a pastor in Washington State, only about 90 miles from Mars Hill, and um, I, I recall being kind of sober-minded about things, thinking I, I don't like his tone, I don't like his uh, approach to ministry, it does not seem Christ-like to me, um, but yet still deep down I 
was uh, a bit enthralled that Calvinism or Reformed theology could take root in Seattle. And so, hmm. you know, I, Interesting. to be honest, you, you couldn't help but think, wow, maybe my ministry could hmm. transform a, a city um, like it seemed at the time Mars Hill was doing. Yeah. And it can be easy to to shift the, fo- the, the, the focus or the, um, the orbit of ministry off Christ and onto, you know, this kingdom that I want to build or this name that I want to make for myself. And I mm. think that people should be honest about that when they listen to things like The Rise and Fall of Mars. Yeah, part of the podcast has made me reconsider where I was in 2014 when this happened and really in the years leading up to that. Um, as I've said before on this podcast, Driscoll's book, Doctrine was really influential for me at a really pivotal part of my life. So I really looked up to what was happening at Mars Drill. I f- Mars Hill, I followed along with a lot of the videos, uh, the sermons, the podcasts. Um, when they went overseas to record videos in, uh, in Turkey and a- across Asia, well, Asia Minor, uh, I was really interested in those videos. And I really wanted to be the next sort of Mars Hill pastor. I wanted to, I can remember telling my dad before I went to seminary that I wanted to be an Acts 29 pastor and have a really cool church. I don't know if I used those exact (laughs) words, but I I had this ambition to be like Mars Hill, to be like Mark Driscoll, not in the sort of tough guy, cool guy. That's never been my thing, but to be the sort of punk rock Mm. theologian, uh, conservative theologian. I thought that was going to be my thing. And then this all went down and I went to seminary and thankfully seminary and my professors and my experiences there really disabused me of this. And some passages that passages that comes to mind, just reflecting in on, on all of this is Philippians chapter two, one of my favorite uh, passages of scripture uh, where Paul says in verse three, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. The first thing we could say is that this this has a lot of implications for leadership. This is for all Christians, those who are in leadership and those who are not in leadership. Uh, mm-hmm. But if it's for all Christians, then it should affect how we do lead. But I love how he says, do nothing from selfish ambition. It's not that ambition itself is wrong. Uh, it's not bad at all to be ambitious for the kingdom of God and for the church and for Christ. Uh, but it is bad to have selfish ambition mm-hmm. where you you want to do big things for yourself to sort of pad the, your stats, as mm-hmm. it were, to make yourself feel bigger. And this is a lesson I think that I learned in just listening back to this podcast and the, the story of how it turned from starting out as this really humble, uh, even sort of, you could say, prophetic witness in the city of Seattle uh, to becoming a kingdom unto itself. And it was not very much at the end about God's kingdom. It was more so about the Mars Hill kingdom. Um, You have Mark Driscoll saying he wouldn't submit to anyone with a smaller church. Things like that are huge red flags. Um, And so keeping this in mind that we should be humble, we should not be conceited, things should not be about ourselves, but that we should count... uh, each other more significant than ourselves and by extension the kingdom of god is more as more important than anything our our lives could ever be about yeah one uh, another takeaway that i have really that is right along with what you've just said is 
it can seem at times like those people with selfish ambition and vain conceit are just at the big churches. Hmm. And I think that would be one of the the bad lessons uh, taken away from this podcast is, wow, look at how this thing just blew up like the Hindenburg and everybody saw it and it was terrible. And um, now we're sort of reliving it seven years later. Um, but selfish ambition and vain conceit can happen on a committee meeting at a church. Like hmm. it, it, it's, it's not a small church. Yeah. It's at, at just a tiny church or, um, or certainly outside churches too in a family. Um, and uh, I would never want to absolutize what that has to look like in order to be a really bad thing. Yeah. So like, here, here's what I mean by that. You don't have to ruin a church to be, grieving the Holy Spirit. <laughs> yeah, um, with your selfish and, ambition. Yeah, or, or this was a very public disaster. And some people might think, oh, well, I've never done anything like that before, especially yeah. pastors. I've never ruined a 15,000-member church before. And, and made people and, question everything about God. Right. Um, and, and yet, it could still be possible that at times I operate more out of selfish ambition and vain conceit than I do out of um, self-reflection, Christ-like motivation, um, you know, humility, really, ultimately. Yeah. And uh, it makes me, sorry. I'll no, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, it makes me wonder why there is such a complex in in broader evangelicalism that gives rise to be people wanting to be hmm. so ambitious for, for the wrong reasons. I, I, I Part of me thinks that evangelicals have felt so not cool, hmm. so backwards, so unintellectual or anti-intellectual that we've begun to sort of want to be really cool. We, we want to win. We want to win. We yeah. want to be seen as yeah. really smart or really hip. Um, and so we have this these sort of complexes that lead us into being selfish, selfishly ambitious. Yeah, um, and it makes us way too vulnerable to that sin pattern, and we need to really question why those things are the case. I I find this in myself a lot, where sometimes I f- will feel embarrassed, to put it frankly, about my faith, and I'll realize I didn't just attack that conversation with somebody and ask them mm. about about the gospel and what they think about Jesus, because I'm kind of embarrassed to bring it up. Mm. Um, and maybe attack is too strong of a word, but <laughs> I didn't just go with it with the sort of Pauline pride in the gospel, uh, where he says in in Romans chapter one that the gospel for him is is the power of salvation. Yeah, I'm unashamed, and, it's, yeah. and he's unashamed of it. Yeah. And so I've felt that sort of embarrassment, and then that can give rise to if 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 unchecked, can give rise to this sort of selfish ambition. Hmm. Uh, that is what Paul is talking about here, and that's a problem uh, because it, yeah, it can lead to the disgrace of of Christ's kingdom. It can bring shame upon the name of Christ. Well, I we we just recorded an episode on pastoral burnout, and in that we talked about the centrality of the sermon in our context, and uh, we we talked about that in the CRC episode too. And I can't help but think that's one of the reasons for this temptation to be so significant for pastors is the sermon is hmm. where people value it and that's a good thing that they value 
yeah. the preaching event, the preaching moment. And yet with that comes a danger of putting all of our self-worth in the, uh, the, the sermon and judging ourselves by how many people say thank you after the sermon or uh, tell other people about the sermon, hmm. post something on Facebook or not about the sermon. And um, when that's happening on, at Driscoll's level and you're getting 100,000 plus downloads of your sermons um, and you, yeah. you, you have a high view of the sermon, then pretty as quick, he did. as he did, um, you know, you, you can, man, that, that's like a narcotic, you know, that's like a drug. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's a good point. And that I, I once heard a, a pastor say to, to my class in seminary, praise is like a drug. And, hmm. um, it, it is, it, it is a, a good thing could be used for a very good thing. Um, but also, can you can be addicted to that that drug pretty easily and mm. uh he was getting that praise for years and years and years and that sort of gets into the next point and really one of the final gleanings that I think we would want to make on this podcast is a lack of accountability so if he yeah. is being praised and praised and praised and he's got 150,000 downloads and he's doing video series and and you know he's preaching at Quest Field to a big group of people then that is uh sort of medicating him against accountability and hmm. uh, repentance. Like, it's possible you, Mark Driscoll, could be wrong, mm-hmm. even though, like, you're getting all this adulation, even though the Lord is maybe even using you in some good ways, hmm. uh, you still are not fully sanctified. And so that was the downfall, eventually, mm-hmm. was his hatred, his, his running away, just to put it frankly, from accountability. Yeah. Um, which was a consistent trend right. over the years. It wasn't just something that happened at the end. Yeah, that's what they said. In, um, in the, I just re-listened to the second-to-last episode, which is it's called The Tempest, which really chronicles the, the actual fall. And uh, one of the elders says at one point, well, we're going to be asking for something we've never seen before, and that's repentance. Huh. So that's kind yeah. of an amazing thing to... Uh, submission, repentance, humility. And, and so a shocking statement to make of your pastor that we're not really so sure he could possibly repent. Hmm. Um, and uh, ultimately he didn't. He he, he ran away uh, yeah. like a father who packs his bags and leaves in the middle of the night. So, yeah. um, so I think that is one of the lessons that we would want to learn both for ourselves and for listeners as well. Does your church have... Uh, repentance, real repentance and humility as a core value, whether that's a liberal church or a conservative church, to really say openly, can, can you imagine that a leader in the church would say, I'm sorry, I messed up. I can't believe how much I've hurt somebody or um, mm-hmm. I just hope that you could forgive me. You know, just so those basic Christian things. <laughs> that's yeah. how we enter the kingdom of God, repent and believe the good news. And so... Um, I think that in that mega church mentality, a lot of people are are going to churches where real repentance, you know, interpersonal relationships being repaired by the work of Christ are not really on the priority list. So, yeah. And so part of that is having an accountability structure that will help to work towards that kind of repentance. Um, And it's not to say that Mark 
or Mar- Mars Hill didn't have any accountability mm-hmm. structure. They did have their pastors who would meet together and the elders of the various churches and so on. But somehow Driscoll seemed to sort of float above it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems to me that he had a lot of yes men that didn't have the ability to really call him out. Um, and even when they did, he, he, he eventually, yeah, as you said, packed his bags and ran for it. And so that's a great point. Do we have the kind of leaders who are able to repent? It's easy to get so blind in ministry to think that you're doing the right thing, that you Hmm. become unable to repent. Um, So this takes a serious measure, a serious dose of of humility to be able to self-examine and to mutter the words, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, but that's what Paul, I think, calls for in First Timothy 3 when he gives qualifications for being an elder or being a pastor, that you shouldn't be a new Christian. Uh, you shouldn't be someone who's just recently come to the faith. Mm. Uh, you should be a seasoned person who has sort of gotten those sorts of uh, ideas of the gospel, those doctrines of the gospel, of repentance, drilled deep <laughs> into who you are, mm-hmm. that you are able to say, I've messed up. And I want to own up to that and face the consequences and I'll do whatever it takes because I want my, my repentance uh, to to be true repentance and I want the kingdom of God to be uh, furthered. And I know that I've done something to uh, get in the way. Yeah, well, and repentance uh, isn't just about knowing yourself. It's about knowing God. I, I, I can't <laughs> help but think that, that somebody who would who would never repent they don't really know how holy God is. They mm. don't know how amazing Christ is. And they're not really measuring yeah. themselves to the character of God. Be perfect for your heavenly Father is perfect, right? And so you're supposed to know God. You're called into that life with God. Um, so it, it does, as Calvin said, it, it comes from knowing yourself and your wretchedness, your futility. He says your hmm. your bankruptcy, basically, spiritually speaking. And also, you would know that because you've encountered God in some way uh, through his word, and you want, would want to be near the Lord. And, and so that gets to, to me, a very core issue to the whole podcast and the whole Driscoll. It's like, I, I wonder hmm. if he really knows Christ. And I don't say that to say, oh, Mark Driscoll's going to be in hell someday. That, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not judging his soul. But I'm saying... Uh, I from from hearing you know sermons and hearing these stories about manipulations and foul language and anger um like Paul Tripp says that does not come from the heart of one who is really in communion with Christ um Paul Tripp actually made that very clear in in his description of the situation and so you know then we turn the mirror on ourselves uh, do we really know Christ? Is that the reason for repentance? We want communion with God, or is it just, well, I've got to do this little thing <laughs> in order to get people on my side again, almost using repentance as a manipulation mm-hmm. to um, convince people that I'm actually a pretty good guy. Um, then you're just furthering the problem. You're exactly. Sort of and then, then you still don't really know Christ. That's not the reason for repentance. It's um, mm-hmm. It's to stay in Your the game. Your repentance becomes propaganda. Yeah, right. So, But yeah, if you really do know Christ, repentance will be something that you want to do. It may be difficult, yeah. but it will be something that ultimately you want to do because you want Christ. 
Uh, you want to walk in holiness. You want to share in his righteousness. Um, and you want, you want to have communion with him. So, yeah, there's been a lot here. I'm sure there's probably more we could have said. There's been other great takes that I've heard from elsewhere, other podcasts or YouTube channels, Paul Vanderclay being one of them. He's had some good things on all of this. But mm-hmm. we hope you have enjoyed a little bit of what we've said, and we'll be with you again next week, Christmas week, yep. uh, one more time. Uh, well, two more times throughout the end of the year. All right, thank you guys for listening. All right, bye.